1: Real quick, Jay, on the Playhouse, and I love your script, how do you want to get from the purses to the knees? That was the one part I couldn't figure out.
2: I I thought that your first response here could be I'm looking for, you know, uh, like a knee MRI or something like that. And then so my response would be like, hey, this is Canal Street, dude. What's wrong with you?
1: (laughs) What's my motivation?
2: Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, my friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone.
1: I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tuber syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table.
2: All right, Mark. So before we get started today, we want to recommend a counterpart to our show, the Dabble Co. podcast. It's also part of the Offscript Network.
1: The host is nurse practitioner Claire O'Brien, and along with other professional women in healthcare, she talks about what's trending and what's actually the truth. Claire also does a
2: very thorough and emotional series of episodes about the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. It represents various aspects of the conversation and is definitely worth checking out.
1: So for a responsible podcast about health, beauty, wellness, and more, check out the Dabble Co. podcast right here on the Opscript Network. You can find the link in our show notes. All right. Fantastic. So, hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man.
2: <laughs> so, the question of the day, are you still on Twitter? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm just waiting for my cut of the $44 billion. That's how it's going to work, right? <laughs> and I know a lot of people are leaving the platform, and I understand. I just don't think at this moment... In you know, early to mid-2022, there's another platform quite like it. Uh, my kids tell me it might be time to take the leap to TikTok. Personally, I'm feeling really good about having this podcast as a platform, especially with a face for radio.
2: <laughs> That's funny. Well, I, you you underestimate your looks there. Oh, you're too kind. This is a, a very important period in our history. I think uh, Twitter is a very important platform for communication. Elon Musk is a guy like you cannot underestimate that guy's capabilities. I mean, you know, just having PayPal on your resume would be incredible, but he's got Tesla and SpaceX as well. I mean, the guy is an amazing guy. I'm not a fan, but he is an amazing guy. And it'll be very interesting to see what what happens to the platform. Uh, I mean, first, they got to get the deal done. But then if he really does take control, uh, it'll be interesting. I, I know just yesterday, I saw that Ivermectin was trending on uh, Twitter, and I was like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> well,
1: you know, it's interesting. World Malaria Day was the other day, and I didn't see high hydroxychloroquine. I did not see hydroxychloroquine trend when it should have been trending. So anyway, sorry, rant over.
2: Sounds good. So, you know, I think uh, today what we wanted to do was actually to some extent revisit one of our inspirations for the podcast. So, originally, we thought of the podcast, as you may remember, as being a sort of a car talk podcast, click and mm-hmm. clack. But you one day had the very smart suggestion to think about Kitchen Confidential and yeah. Anthony, Anthony Bourdain yeah. and how that could be an inspiration for the show. And uh, today, I really wanted to take that model and to talk about the reality of healthcare and the reality. Of being a doctor, reality of health insurance. I just reread the book, so I'm uh, excited. And it's so funny to think about some of the things in the book, like no fish on Monday, never yeah. order fish on Monday. I, I remember that so well. Be careful of the recycled bread. You've read the book, right? I mean, you know the oh, story. Oh, I,
1: <laughs> I idolized Tony, RIP, and you know he's such an amazing voice. And what what he did was really you know allow people to see that industry, warts and all, right? And and I love the fact that he basically took the image of the chef in the pristine, you know, white hat and smock and really showed the reality. And I think that's what you're getting at is that was such a uh, incredible example of someone who was uh, always, always, always candid. I, th- I think he was an incredibly compassionate person, uh, but I think his candor was maybe his defining characteristic.
2: And, you know, um, I was looking at the... Uh the book itself. It was actually published in 2000, but the book feels older than that. For somebody who's lived in New York since 1988, it's hard to believe, hard to say that. Uh, (laughs) Hard to believe it has been that long. You know, he's really describing, he's going back to the bad old days, like the 70s and the 80s, you know. And I think, you know, today at the end of our our podcast today, we'll channel the 90s uh, to some extent and talk (laughs) a little bit about healthcare. But in any case, today what we really wanted to do was talk about where the rubber hits the road and really highlight this incredibly dysfunctional healthcare system. I, I, I do a lot of public speaking. I've spoken about this many times. We use the term system, which implies some kind of rational design, mm-hmm. but it's really a mishmash that's been developed over decades. And it works well in some ways, but it really works horribly in a variety of other ways. And I thought that maybe one of the ways to, to kick it off and to highlight some of this dysfunction is with the deceptively simple question that. Patients ask us all the time, do you take my insurance?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. And you're talking about this as like a machine. One of the things we'll get at is parts of the machine are broken on purpose, which is absolutely diabolical. So let's talk about it.
2: Sure, and just in terms of my bona fides here, I have run a medical clinic. I ran a medical clinic for a couple of years. Actually, before I was doing addiction medicine, I actually ran a sports medicine clinic and founded one. Uh, wow. The reason I get into addiction is because my business partner was in recovery, and we were looking for opportunities to help people, and that's how I ended up in addiction. Oh, I've also ended up consulting with lots and lots of other doctors out there and helping them with their practices. So I've seen it from the inside. I've sat on the other t- side of the table, and I really do know how a medical practice works.
1: Well, I admire you so much, Jail. And one of the reasons is you have that, I'll call it business savvy that I don't. And I am completely naive. And as I told you before, I received zero, zero training in the business of healthcare going through medical school and residency. I never learned about insurance and all the things we're going to talk about today. And I I think there's a, a false assumption that Oh, doctors must understand this. This must be part of their, their learning, both their formal learning and their lifelong learning. It's just really not. Uh, it's something that patients have to encounter that, frankly, we are often ill-equipped to counsel them on.
2: Yes, absolutely. And Mark, in your defense, I do have an MBA. I spent two <laughs> years studying this stuff. I've been working <laughs> in this space for a long time. So, uh, you know, it's it, there, there's a lot to learn. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, but that's that's part of the point is you're, you're the exception, not the rule, right? Most doctors don't have an MBA. So
2: Correct. All right. So let's go back to the basic question. Do you take my insurance? And actually, it's a very complicated question, right? The U.S. is weird, as I was suggesting before. Mark, I remember when you were talking about Scotland and coming over. You know, I know that the NHS is such a different system, but maybe give us like a couple seconds on like how different is it from this crazy system we have here in the U.S.?
1: I mean, it's almost the complete opposite. So I told you before, about the culture shock my family got here in the late 80s. We've been used to the National Health Service, which frankly had been an institution in Britain since right after World War II. So obviously that was a time of sort of great cultural reassessment. Turns out that in the early 20th century, there was something called the Royal Commission on the Poor, and it had already been identified that, wow, there are a lot of unmet needs. We need a unified medical service. And then almost the sort of rebuilding, the, the rising of the Phoenix after World War II, that catalyzed this change. So the three sort of core principles of the NHS are, and this is direct quotes from sort of its founding statement, that it meet the needs of everybody, that it be free at the point of delivery, and that it be based on clinical need, not ability to pay. And again, I think we're about to get into is the U.S. system, none of those core principles are in play when we talk about commercial insurance.
2: So just as a quick overview here, there are a number of different insurance schemes that exist. So first, there's what's called commercial insurance. And actually, most people have a commercial health insurance plan and most people get it through their employer, which is a weird thing to begin with. And uh, most other developed countries don't require people to get their insurance through their employer. But the big commercial brands are United, Aetna, Cigna, Anthem, and there are a couple of others. Uh, Health insurance is very much a uh, state-driven product. So the different health insurance tend to be different depending on what state you're in. Then there's the Medicare program. That's a program for older people, people over the age of 65. And then there's Medicaid, which is a insurance product for people with low incomes. And Mark, a question for you. Like, what, What's the situation at Intermount? Are you guys taking all insurances? What's what's your story there?
1: Yeah. So not necessarily all, but one thing that's interesting about where I live and work, Jail, as I've mentioned before, Utah is the youngest state. Our mm-hmm. average age is 30. So when you're talking about Medicare, that means that we have less folks who are sort of 65 and up. And we actually have our mm-hmm. own insurance product. And one of the things that's been cool about working where I work is every now and then they come to me as a doctor and they say, hey, should we cover this? I've actually never worked at a place wow. that has this sort of exchange of ideas with an insurer. So with that, I've been able to ensure that the age of screening colonoscopy is now 45 and that gets covered. We're wow, working to that's cover great. Yeah. And we cover like fertility preservation for cancer patients. So but again, just talking about your MBA, I am in an exceptional role. It's very uncommon that docs get to talk to insurers and and have them listen uh, in the way that my insurance partner does. So I know how lucky I am.
2: Got it. So you've got these three big buckets out there, but what I think a lot of people don't understand is even within United Healthcare, they are offering dozens and dozens and dozens of products. So if you were to look across all the different commercial insurers, you're literally talking about hundreds, maybe more than a thousand products. I have Aetna is my insurance. I have a product called elect, choice, open access. Every single one of those words has significance <laughs> in terms of co-pays, deductibles, out-of-network spend, your out-of-pocket max. And as you can imagine, when you're calling a doctor's office, usually the person who's picking up the phone is a minimum wage plus worker. In some places it may be different, but certainly in New York, you know these are people who are making 16 bucks an hour, 17 bucks an hour. And the truth is, those people often don't know Mm -hmm. what insurance the doctor takes because sometimes the doctor may not even know what insurance they take because there are so many different types of plans out there. It's a very important thing to understand that you really need to know whether your doctor takes your insurance before you go there. We'll talk about that more in a second. But generally a tip that I give to people is usually the best source of information as to whether your doctor takes your insurance or not is gonna be your payer directory. So if you have United, uh, Aetna, go to the website, Log on, Mm -hmm. and you can usually find out what type of insurance plan you have because it may not be obvious on your card what insurance plan you have. And it may not be obvious whether your doctor you're going to see actually takes that insurance. Often, it's not the person who answers the phone who's going to be able to answer that question if you call a doctor's office. Sometimes it's going to be somebody called the office manager Mm -hmm. uh, who is usually overseeing the practice, might know the answer. And then sometimes you might even have to go deeper into the practice to the biller, which is the person who is literally submitting the bills to the health insurance company.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I know it sounds already like we're putting a lot of onus of responsibility on the patient. This is one place where I would ask sort of a pivot of mindset and and really think, as you do in every other aspect of life, of yourself as a consumer. And it really, really pays off, just like you're saying, JL, to do some upfront research to make sure the coverage is there rather than trying to claw things back uh, after the fact, which is much more difficult.
2: All right, so we'll transition to the next question. So a lot of times people hear terms, in-network, out-of-network, cash pay. What are those things? What does that mean? So uh, the first thing to understand is that the vast majority of doctors get paid by their insurance company on a per-widget basis. So the doctor does a visit, the doctor does a procedure, and the insurance company literally has a code for each one of those things. Sometimes doctors are getting paid like $7 for something or $13, some very small amount that they have to submit a code for. Generally, the insurance company covers most of an expense, but there's generally some level of sharing with the patient. In network means that your doctor has signed a deal with the insurance company. It's sort of like a standard agreement. And as a result, the doctor says, I will accept the price that you're giving me. In return, the insurance company will promote you. They'll put you on their website. They'll drive patients toward you. And it's usually the lowest price to the patient. So if you're going to a doctor's office, you generally want to hear that the doctor is in network with mm-hmm. your insurance because that's generally going to be the lowest cost to you. And Mark, how do you guys approach it? Are you in network for some insurances? Out of network for others.
1: That's exactly right. And, and where mm-hmm. it gets a little trickier is, you know, I treat some very rare cancers jail. Mm-hmm. So there are times when someone might not have in-network insurance to see me, but their clinical circumstance is so exceptional that their insurance company will actually allow them to travel, so to speak, out of network and come and see me and that care can be covered. So as we'll get to later, there are terms of negotiation and there are ways of sort of thinking outside the box If your specific health need doesn't fit inside, you know, standard parameters.
2: Absolutely. So we talked in-network, then there's out-of-network. So out-of-network means that the doctor hasn't signed a deal with your health insurance company, but the doctor sometimes can bill your insurance company. Sometimes it'll be a more complex process. Patients almost always have to pay more. But a very important thing to understand is that many plans nowadays have no out-of-network benefits. So I actually have, going back to my plan before, I have what's called an EPO product. And most EPO products are closed network. In other words, if I wanted to see a doctor who's outside of the network, my insurance company won't take a bill from that doctor and won't cover any care that happens Mm. outside of the network. So that's a very important thing to understand. There are a lot of things that you can control, like when you're, you know, if your mind is working, yes, you can go to ask a doctor whether they're in network or out of network. But if you've been rendered unconscious, and you get taken to an emergency room, and that emergency room happens to be out of network, it can be very costly, very expensive, and very quickly.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a surprise billing that you can't necessarily prepare for, and uh, it's deeply unfortunate.
2: Next is cash pay. So there, in some markets, in certain specialties, there are doctors who don't take insurance at all. Patients pay them directly. So a great example is psychiatrists in New York City. Mm. If you want to see a good psychiatrist in New York City who is boarded, you have to pay them cash. They will not huh. take your insurance. Wow. And you're talking generally- about $500 an hour for a psychiatrist. So again, it's high demand for psychiatry here in New York City because everybody's crazy. And then a (laughs) low supply of psychiatrists creates a market where those types of doctors don't have to take insurance at all and can get paid in cash. For my service, Central Modern Recovery, we are cash pay as well. But Hmm. the reason that we are cash pay is because many of the services that we offer, recovery coaching, therapy, all that stuff, is often not covered by insurance. So that's the reason why we generally have to charge patients um, uh, a cash rate.
1: Wow. Thanks for your insights to the market. That's really fascinating how things work there in New York. That's right. Uh, And then finally, there's a
2: small number of docs who are in what are called value-based arrangements. And it's interesting in those value-based arrangements because it's not what the doctor does that's supposed to drive their payment. It's the outcomes they're supposed to achieve that are supposed to drive payments. And actually, many people don't know this, but a core element of Obamacare was trying to move our system away from a system where we pay for widgets, we pay for inputs rather than paying for outcomes or outputs of the system.
1: Yep. The first word in that legislation is affordable.
2: Uh Uh-huh, absolutely. So when you go into your doctor's office, you're gonna see a space that's buzzing with activity, right? There's like all kinds of people moving around. In my observation, in all the work that I've done, most of the people behind the scenes who are not wearing a white coat are basically just trying to figure out these insurance questions. And there are there's a whole army of people whose job it is to call the insurance company, follow up on bills, do prior authorizations. And it is amazing how much we divert to the administrative part of healthcare mm-hmm. that we could be spending on proper care. I mean, Mark, how many people would you say at your clinic- are like, what's the breakdown of care providers versus like administrative people?
1: Oh, gosh. I'm that's a great question. I mean, it's probably something like 70 30 if I'm just guessing wow. at the ratio. And but you're right, it just requires so much support because once again, this is not my area of expertise. I do cancer care, that is what I live and breathe. The last thing I was ever taught to do was bill. In fact, just today, I got a little tutorial on if I'm delivering X service. I need to click this box in the electronic medical record because it equates to you know Y amount of, of money. And again, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. That's a system we work in. But again, it is extremely important for people to realize that it takes an entire other largely invisible workforce to make this system run, to be the interface between doctors and patients.
2: Sure, and, and I'll give you a quick story here. So uh, in 2013, my mother needed to have surgery, okay? I am calling a world-renowned surgeon at Columbia, the, the institution where I trained, I called the front desk. Do you take my mom's insurance? We don't know. I spoke to the office manager. We don't know. I spoke to the biller. We don't know, okay? So l- let let me abstract the problem for people. I am calling to say, I have $50,000 that I want to give you, okay? Are you guys ready to take my $50,000? And they could never figure out if they took my mom's insurance and we went to another hospital, if you can imagine.
1: No, I, I completely understand that. I- a uh, story I like to tell is I have a, a friend who's an incredibly successful chef in Chicago. So, so back to Bourdain, right? And good chefs, they don't just put great food on the plate. They really understand the economics of the kitchen. And he had a thankfully minor medical problem, went to uh, an urgent care in ER, ended up with a massive bill that he did not see coming. And he said, Mark, this is insane the way this operates. He said, you could never run a restaurant where neither the chef nor the (laughs) diner knows the cost of the meal. You'd be terrified to go in. Is this gonna cost me like $3? Or is this gonna break the bank? You know, It's that lack of transparency that I think is so maddening.
2: Sure, absolutely. So if you're going to see a doctor, make sure you know if your doctor is in or out of network, ask them how much your visit will cost. And if people there tell you, I don't know, you have to insist and say, that's not good enough. Demand to speak to the manager, or if they can't a- answer your question, then you have to move on and try to find a provider who can answer that question for you.
1: Exactly right. I mean, again, we wouldn't accept, wouldn't accept no or I don't know in any other aspect of commercial business, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. All right. So now we've talked a little bit about insurance. Let's talk about how you select your insurance. So going back to what I was saying before, most people, when they start a new job, will often have the opportunity to enroll in benefits. And that period is generally called the enrollment period. You generally have like two weeks to choose the benefits that you want. What I can tell you from my seat is that most people make the wrong choice. Either Mm. people choose an insurance product that does not provide them enough coverage, or they choose an insurance product that provides too much coverage. (laughs) It's actually... A Goldilocks problem. It's hard to figure out what's the middle line. (laughs) Ideally, what you're trying to do is you're, yes, trying to reduce the cost that you pay for your premium and your medications, but you're also trying to do a very important thing is protect yourself from blowing your bank account if you get sick. Again, we've alluded to this many times before, getting really sick, can be really expensive. Ideally, there would be some kind of website that you went that said, hey, based on your demographics, how much you spent on medication, this is the right insurance plan for you. And actually, when I was at Blueprint Health, I used to run a small VC firm. Um, We saw a lot of startups trying to solve this problem, but nobody has figured it out yet. So I think what's really important to understand is as you're looking at your different insurance products, I think there's really two things that you have to think about. If there are regular doctors that you see, make sure that those doctors are on your insurance and are going to be on the insurance that you choose. Yep. The second thing is consider the worst case scenario. Yes. Consider, God forbid, you have surgery. Consider, God forbid, you get into an accident. Consider the worst case scenario where you have unlimited or very high healthcare costs. Think about what the out of pocket max is and what the, uh, what really, what's the maximum exposure you can face. Uh, You know, I had to recently choose some healthcare plans for my employees here. I saw healthcare plans marked that had out of pocket maximums of $20,000.
1: Oh, man, that's awful.
2: And in a country where like 50% of people don't even have like $400 in their bank account, I don't even remember what the stat is, the idea that you'd have to take a $20,000 loss for something that you didn't control, you couldn't control, is very scary. So, again, look at the downside of the health insurance product and make sure that you're choosing out of pocket maximums that can fit with your bank account with how much you have to spend.
1: Right. And, you know, along with the many other wake up calls the last two years, I mean, just think about COVID. I mean, The virus, in its most sort of serious incarnations, took people who could not have foreseen a serious health problem and put some of them, at least, in the hospital and even some fraction of those in the ICU, which is immediately going to result in exorbitant costs. So I agree with uh, your strategy, JL, of sort of thinking about how do you protect yourself against that sort of otherwise prohibitive expense.
2: And um, really that takes us to the, the, the next thought before we take a break is that really behind the scenes, there is a constant nuclear war that's happening between payers and providers, payers and health insurance companies, providers, your doctor and others. Again, as I said, we have a system that pays you by the widget. And essentially what doctors are always trying to do is maximize the amount of widgets that they get done. For many doctors, the insurance company literally defines their whole existence. And the example I used the other day was it's like a, a, somebody living in a communist country blaming like the central committee for <laughs> th- this unseen entity that's controlling their life. And in many ways, it is like a central committee that sets the price and decides what you can and can't do. Further complicating this, there's like a whole multi-billion dollar industry of companies that you've never heard of that exist to try to get your doctor to do less work for you. So what I really want people to understand is that behind the scenes, behind you know the front desk, your doctor and his team or her team are fighting for you. The other day I had to do an injection of a medication called Vivitrol, long acting medication that helps people with alcohol and opiate disorders to stop uh, to achieve recovery. I called the Philippines. I was on the, on hold for like 10 minutes. I talked to somebody who was like, okay, I got to kick you up to my manager. I mean, it was a half an hour just to get this patient access to their medication. Oh. So, you know, I, I think people really need to understand how complicated this is. And Mark, I think, you know, you're you're oncology, so you're dealing with this all day
1: long. Yeah, honestly, it's it's one of the things about my job I enjoy the least. Obviously, I have a tough time, you know, conveying to people sometimes very bad news, sometimes, you know, terminal prognosis. But but frankly, I again, I was trained to do that. I sort of feel like that aspect of the job is, is really my calling. What I never anticipated was how much time I would spend doing paperwork, making these sort of arguments on the phone, advocating for my patients to get the care they need. If I go back to the Chef analogy, I was thinking about this, it's almost as if that same chef has a third party determining which ingredients they can use in the kitchen. <laughs> and you know, the, the, here the insurer would be like, no, 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 you can't use clarified butter. You can have margarine, you know? And I know that seems like a silly analogy, but that's really what's happening. Like I will prescribe on the best evidence available to me a chemo plan. And you better believe, I think very carefully about which drugs my patients are going to get. And then sometimes at the 11th hour, I hear, uh, you know what, Dr. Lewis, we're not going to improve that drug. We're going to let you have this other drug as if they're readily interchangeable when they are not. And that's when I have to get on the phone and make the argument. It always, I should say, almost always boils down to cost. The drug that they're proposing, they have made some sort of arrangement where it is going to be cheaper for them, even if it is not necessarily as clinically beneficial to the patient
2: the tip that i give people is you have to be prepared to advocate for yourself Mm -hmm. in this system particularly if you're getting an expensive medication you should know what your insurance covers we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second Always remember that health insurance companies, most of them are for-profit companies. They have shareholders. Those shareholders expect uh, profits to be going up every quarter. Insurance companies actually use a term called the medical loss ratio. Mm. So in a previous life, uh, I actually, after I got my MBA, I, I covered hospitals and HMOs for uh, for a, a, a Wall Street bank here in New York. And that's the term that they use, the MLR. Mm. So the amount that they spend on healthcare is not the medical expenditure ratio. It's not the medical investment ratio. It is the medical loss ratio. And that's a number that they're always trying to get down. And that's what they employ a lot of people to do.
1: Yeah. And that explains why when I'm trying to prescribe something, it costs potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars, which I realize is a lot. And it makes me sound like a bad steward of the system. On the other hand, I know these are the drugs that can preserve my patients' lives, and I'm going to fight for them. That's why there are so many people interested in, if you will, arbitrating that cost. All right. So with that, I think that's
2: the end of our first half today. We'll take it to a break. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about finding a good doc. That sounds great.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
2: So, uh one of the things that I really wanted to talk about today is finding a good doctor because, you know, in my role and Mark, I'm sure in your role as a friend and as a husband, as a son, as a cousin, one of the most common questions that we'll get is where can I find a good doctor? I mean, how many times you get that question per week?
1: Oh, all the time. And and it's interesting, you know, we live in an era where Everything on Amazon has a review, right you know as we'll talk about I think there's now this way that we try to quantify how good doctors are
2: and look, Finding a good doctor is actually very hard. The truth is, there it's really hard to tell the difference between Doctor A and Doctor B. Um, and uh, you know, it's how do you compare one internal medicine doctor versus another? Uh, one of the ways that the internet, uh, one of the tools that the internet has given us, is online rating sites. So, Mark, I did a little research and I noticed that your reviews on the Inner Mountain site were stellar, all fives. Congratulations. Aww.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I have to tell you, this is a funny comment to internet age. So my son is 11. We give him limited access to the internet. And one of the things he tracks constantly is my <laughs> online ratings. I actually find it really, really adorable that, you know, even he looks at his own dad through that lens. And not
2: only does he have the numeric rating, but he probably also has access to the written review, the qualitative review. And there's often a lot of interesting nuggets in, in, in that yes. information.
1: Yes. I actually find that part almost... Are more rich because the numbers we'll talk about are something that you can hang your hat on, but sort of the narrative experiences that people will take the time to relay and put on these rating sites, those can be meaningful, provided you read them with a tiny grain of salt. Mm-hmm. So one of
2: my tools that I use all the time, um, I was a customer at, uh, of this company. It's a company called ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C. I also had a chance to be employee number one at this company <laughs> way back in 2007. That's a whole other story, but... <laughs> great great company from the standpoint that they have a lot of good ratings data and uh, generally what i tell people is go to Zocdoc if you're looking for a doctor they measure doctors on a one to five scale but realize that it's really a four to five scale uh, mm-hmm. a doctor who's got a rating of a four 4.0 is probably not a good doctor and mm-hmm. interestingly enough it's the ratings what i have found are not just a measure of the doctor but really a measure of the front office staff yes. of the of the the, the doorman of the building, that rating actually measures much more than just a doctor. In some ways, very unfair, but can give you a better idea of what your broader experience is going to be. Because if you go to a doctor's office and you spend an hour there, you may spend five minutes with the doctor. But if the front desk staff is annoying, if the door staff is annoying, that could impact your experience as much as having a bad experience with the doctor.
1: I'm so glad you said that because that's why I want people to drill down just a little bit past the number. And look at, you know, again, these sort of comments that are made. What is skewing people's vote one way or the other? Honestly, I've had complaints in the past about parking, which I have very little control <laughs> over. But, but you're right, Joe. What's really being captured here, and it's important, is the entire front-to-back patient experience, of which you would hope the interaction with the doctor would be the bulk. But you're right. These other factors, they do matter to people, too. And you see them reported on these sites. So uh, on on Zocdoc, if you see a doctor who's
2: got a rating of let's say four point eight, that's generally going to be a very solid doctor. In general, you want to look for a uh, hundred reviews or more uh, because it's, you know some of these systems can be gamed. But a doc with a hundred reviews, four point eight, you're going to be in good company. But and there's a big button there. Once you start surfacing great doctors, everybody gets attracted to them. So the challenge then becomes, will the doctor have availability? Will the doctor take your insurance? And you'll have to do a, your own homework to call the office to figure out the answers to those questions. But I generally find that that is a good way to find a good doctor. Mark, any other sites that you like?
1: Yeah, I like uh, vitals.com for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And okay. I think I even mentioned in a prior... Pod uh, that I actually had a patient once alert me that I've been reviewed on Yelp. So mm. you know, I, I never thought I'd be on there, but it's interesting. Again, people use these modern tools at their disposal, and and the idea is, you know, that they're really good doctors. They're going to bubble to the surface on almost any of these platforms. The sort of word of mouth you just mentioned that now happens digitally. I had a partner here who for the first couple of months of practice was coming to me like, Mark, I'm just not seeing enough patients. And the moment she started to get good reviews online, oh man, it snowballed. Wow. And then it was like her capacity to see new people drastically diminished. So you're right, the, the the more people are seen online as great docs, the harder it might be to get in. So everything you just said, perfect advice for our listeners.
2: All right. So Hard to measure doctor quality, and, I, oh, and I've and i heard doctors complain about this many times. It is absolutely true, but it's less hard to measure experience, and often that's what people really care about. So as a patient, use data to make your decisions. Search online. As I often tell my children, you have the knowledge of all mankind at your fingertips. Use it to help you find the right doctor for you.
1: You sound like a great dad and a great doctor.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so now we're going to get into the clinic. So you've walked in, you've made your appointment, the doctor takes your insurance, you go into the clinic. Nine times out of 10, they're going to give you a clipboard. Nine times out of 10, you're going to get a paper clipboard with a whole bunch of page after page of questions of history of uh, information about your finances I've been to practices where they have electronic kiosks where I joke you not I've counted like how many times I've had to click enter or you know hit next or whatever and I I, I went to one practice I went to an ENT doc uh, and they had a a system that I won't uh, give the brand of but I think I counted like 300 clicks to get through (laughs) the end I mean like the whole review of systems was imagine 100 clicks just there Uh, and it took Forever, And the reality and why I bring this up is because the doctor really won't even look at it. Most of the time, the doctor is going to ask you relevant history in the exam room. And to be honest, many practice managers are capturing this information and they can't even tell you why they're capturing the information. I mean, Mark, what's your process like? Are are people filling out forms? Do you even look at them?
1: They, well, I do. But I'll tell you two things. One is it's immediately apparent that you're switching from one medium to the other. Is that everything you put on paper is presumably at some point going to get scanned into, as we've discussed before, Mm -hmm. the electronic medical record. And the other thing to remember is you are there to communicate with your doctor. One of the things that drives me, uh, if I'm very honest, crazy, is when the patient is filling out their paperwork while I'm in the room. Like, I promise I'm going to read it later or I'll give them time to complete it later. The whole point of that interaction is for us to get to know one another. And I promise, 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 and this is what you're trying to say, JL, what you tell your doctor face-to-face is going to be more meaningful than what you write down on the form because you are going to prioritize what is important to you. So the
2: point is, focus on your interaction with your doctor as opposed to your paperwork. My mother is very fastidious about these things, so we'll spend a lot of time (laughs) filling out the paper at the doctor's office. I say, Mom, just talk
1: to the doctor. You'll be okay. And JL, one thing you might see is sometimes, and actually we do promote this in my practice, we encourage people to fill out those forms ahead of time. Yes. We actually can push them to them electronically. That, I think, is a beautiful system because it takes all of this needless delay and distraction out uh, and away from the core encounter with your doc.
2: All right, so let's talk about the schedule now. So, what many people don't understand is that your doctor has to be very aggressive with his or her schedule because there's a lot that they can't control. All it takes is one patient showing up half an hour late to blow up the day. All it takes is one patient canceling at an important time when other patients wanted to come in to really create a lot of chaos. So, understand that scheduling for doctors, the doctor's time is very precious. Everybody wants part of that time. and as a result, the doctor's office often has to do things like overbooking to be able to give patients access to the doctor. Mark, do you guys have like a a, a policy around uh, scheduling?
1: Yeah, we do. And this is going to sound at first almost punitive for patients with cancer who, believe me, I know are sick. So I I do give as much latitude as I can. On the other hand, J.L., what you're getting at is there's a real snowball effect. A single person running late or no showing can dramatically affect the care of every other patient that day. And in my clinic, what it means is people being late for their chemotherapy because about two thirds of the people I'm seeing on any given day are getting chemo. They're getting chemo at a specific time. Mm. So we we do permit tardiness, but we actually keep track of when people are extremely late, which means more than 30 minutes past their appointment time. And we do keep track of no shows. And that's, again, not trying to be too difficult, too much of a disciplinarian, it's just important for people to understand that they fit into a very busy clinic. I tell everybody, you are going to get the time that you need when you're my patient, but you really need to try to be punctual.
2: Okay. Now, while the doctor's office is balancing on a razor's edge, most of the time, it's really difficult to get into the doctor's office. There will be a few times in the year where actually you can easily access the physician. So, in my experience running a sports medicine clinic in the past, I noticed that on rainy days, we had at least 20 to 25% of our spots would cancel, uh, either the night before or the day of. And if we had a big snowstorm, we might cancel up to 50% of our schedule. So, what I always tell people is take a look at the weather. My tip is bad weather days are always great days to see the doctor, assuming your doctor can make it to the clinic. Remember, Big storms are usually forecast ahead of time, and you'll start to see cancellations the day before the storm. So if you're having a difficult time getting in touch with your doctor, finding an appointment, calling the day before or the day of can be a great way to find some availability on your doctor's schedule. Another thing I would recommend is always try to get the first appointment of the day. As Mark was saying, all it takes is one person coming in late to blow up the schedule. It's like being on an airplane. Um, All it takes is your first flight of the day to be disrupted and it blows up the rest of the schedule. If you can get the first appointment of the day, you can usually catch the doctor right at the beginning, no delays, and generally that's what I would recommend.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Earlier, the better. <laughs> All right, so now you've seen the doctor,
2: you're getting ready to go. How much do you owe? Oh my God, only in healthcare <laughs> is this question hard. So, our former president, George Bush, coined the term fuzzy math. Do you remember the fuzzy math?
1: <laughs> I do, yes. <laughs>
2: and fuzzy math rules in healthcare. There are few places where you're going to go where you have as many different potential prices that you have to pay. And again, as I was saying before, the front desk may not know, is your copay $20, $30, $40? They may not know. If you have a high deductible plan, it may be the case that today's visit is $250. Tomorrow's visit might be free. And to further confuse the thing, you're going to get a document from your insurance company called an explanation of benefits, an EOB, that will try to explain to you what just happened and what you actually owe. And I can tell you, I have an MBA from Wharton, and I'm still confused when I get those EOBs.
1: I'm glad you're admitting that because the EOB, I mean, it says explanation, but it usually leaves me pretty perplexed. And the other thing that I think drives patients understandably uh, into a state of panic is there'll be often a very, very large number on there that they owe Mm. X amount. But then it'll also say, this is not a bill. Right. Um, and, and and again, there's no other industry where we do this. Like at McDonald's, it's not like you roll through the drive through, get a Big Mac and they hand you a receipt that says $80 and then like, ha ha, not a bill. <laughs> so it, again, there are so many things that are weird and and unique about this particular situation, Joe.
2: And, and again, I really do want people to understand. I I, I consider myself... 10 out of 10, the most sophisticated healthcare consumer out there. I'm a physician. I have an MBA with a focus on healthcare systems, and I still don't understand this stuff sometimes. So if you don't understand it, it's not. there's nothing wrong with you. It's everything wrong with the system. Yeah. To understand this just a little bit, though, Part of why this happens is that the doctor doesn't determine how much you pay. It's your insurance company. So every time you have an interaction with your doctor, your doctor submits something that's called a claim. Again, this is an insurance product. So a claim is submitted to the insurance company, and that claim has to be adjudicated. And it's only then that you actually know how much a patient owes. So for instance, if somebody's got a high deductible health plan and they just had a $6,000 surgery then usually most of the healthcare after that is gonna be very low cost, maybe no cost to the patient. But if you have the surgery, after you have the appointment, that appointment actually might cost you 250 bucks, and you really only know that after the claim has been adjudicated. I think the one thing that we can do to help patients or help our listeners is that when you sign up for an, uh, your health insurance plan, you get a document. Most people just file it away. They don't even think about it. It's available on the internet as well, usually at your portal. It's called the Insurance Summary of Benefits and Coverage, also known as the SBC, It's actually a standard document that lays out how much you owe for every possible service, primary care, specialty, pharmacy, ER. Make sure you review that document because you can carry that knowledge with you into the physician's office. So if they say, hey, your copay is actually $30, you can say, well, based on this document, my copay is only $20.
1: Yeah, that's super helpful. And the other thing I wanted to surface here, JL, and I think this is maybe what the Explanation of benefits is trying to do, albeit not very well, is to bridge the gap in time between the actual encounter, your actual interaction with your doctor, the claim, and the actual need for you to submit payment. This gap in time can be months, which I think leads to some confusion. I actually learned Mm -hmm. yesterday, and this is an extreme example, I learned that an insurance company was retroactively billing not a patient, but a patient's widow four years after wow. his death. And and wow. to be honest with you, that chilled me to the bone. I was like, that is so wrong. Not only is that sort of, you know, unroofing a, a presumably you know still quite raw emotional wound, that is a bill I'm sure this woman was not planning on paying four years after her husband's death from cancer. So the gaps can be that lengthy.
2: All right. And then finally, the last secret that we wanted to talk about today is this notion of let's make a deal. I remember, uh, you know, I'm a big game show fan. One of my favorite game shows uh, ever. But think about what we said before. Doctors and insurance companies have a very complicated relationship. Getting paid by an insurance company is torture. You have to submit claims. You have to follow up. You have to get verification of benefits. It's torture. The average payment for a claim is $30 if you have a uh, 30 days excuse me Thanks. if you have a well run practice but some claims might not get paid for 60 days 90 days it is a huge problem for physician offices now some providers will be willing to do a deal with you if you pay cash up front i'll give you a deal So I'll give you an example. A few years back, I needed an MRI on my knee and I had a high deductible health plan. I knew that this was gonna cost me thousands of bucks. I was gonna be exposed to the cost anyway. So I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy (laughs) who said, hey, if you come to this center in Midtown at 8 p.m. on this night and you're willing to pay upfront for 400 bucks, I will do the MRI for you. And that's actually how I got an MRI and ended up spending much less than what I would have spent going somewhere else. So, this sounds like not an episode
1: a, of The Sopranos, Jail, I love it, I absolutely. <laughs> love
2: it. <laughs> it, in some ways, it's sort of shady. And in a system that's dominated by health insurance payment, you don't typically think about negotiating or right. trying to get a cash price. But there are places in healthcare where you can ask the doctor, you can ask the office manager, do you guys take cash? And if you take cash, what's my price? And you'd be surprised. Sometimes you'll get hmm. a good answer for that. Wow, Interesting. All right, And in honor of that, I think what I'd like to do is introduce a new segment. We are the <laughs> Is It Serious Players, and we're going to take you back to the 1990s, and we're going to negotiate the price of an MRI for the knee. All
1: right, I'm down.
2: So hey, buddy, look like you're from out of town. What do you need? You need a nice Chanel purse for the wife? Actually, I'm in the market for a knee MRI. A knee MRI? This is Canal Street, dude. The only thing we got here is fake, No, I mean real, Chanel, Gucci, and Prada. That said, I know some people.
1: I had no idea there'd be so much walking in New York, my osteoarthritis is killing me.
2: Osteoarthritis? Do you need both knees? Is, is this like a bilateral kind of thing? Ah, uh, you know the lingo. Well, look, I'm in a med student at Columbia. Fake merch pays the tuition. But hey, hey, watch out for those three Monty guys. Those guys are criminals.
1: Well, I hope this is all legal, young man, because I'm in no shape to run from the police. Sir, I think we can help you. Just what's your beeper number?
2: If you can give me your beeper (laughs) number, I have my assistant, Barbara, get back to you shortly.
1: I can't tell if that's the end of my current career or the start of a new one. I'm not going to bank on becoming a uh, voice actor, (laughs) but that was fun, Joe.
2: And listen, we 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 as all this health insurance stuff evolves, you may see more bartering, more negotiating, uh, more more of that as we go along in the healthcare industry. Okay. So um, it's been a great discussion. I've been uh, very happy to reveal all these hacks, all these secrets. And again, I hope uh, we were able to uh, to recognize the spirit of Anthony Bourdain and and channel uh, the Kitchen Confidential ethos. But before we go, what we wanted to do was share a timely tweet. And Mark, I think you have one.
1: Yeah. And I'm sorry to say this is actually going to relate back to your healthcare plan, J.L. So we talked about you know Twitter and I mentioned briefly TikTok. I think the star of medical TikTok is an ophthalmologist mm-hmm. called Doctor Glaucom Flecken. I know this is already sounding improbable. <laughs> the guy is a comedy genius and uh-huh. he just did he just did a video both on TikTok and Twitter about Aetna. Okay, and his point was Aetna is requiring now prior authorization before cataract surgery. Now, of course, Mm. this is going to affect him as an eye doctor. His real point in in the video was that cataracts are nearly inevitable, Mm -hmm. that if you live long enough, it's almost certain that you'll develop them. And thus, why would you need to go through the hoops of prior authorization for what is really, I think, a very justifiable operation? And he makes the very incisive point that the only reason to do this is to create an obstacle. Yep. Then decreases Aetna's expenditures Absolutely. and improves their their bottom line. And he actually cites their most recent profit margin as something like eight billion with a B dollars. So anyway, I saw that. I knew we were talking about this. You told me you had an Aetna health plan. I thought this was just <laughs> perfect. So shout out Dr. Welcome Flecken.
2: All right, I'll check it out. And that that is an interesting last name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great talking about this topic today. I I was really excited to be able to put this together uh, and I look forward to our next episode. And I'd like to thank our listeners as always for listening. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at isitserious@offscript.com. no T in Offscript, or you can call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO66, and that's 855-283-4666. You can also find us on social media. I'm active on LinkedIn, and my Twitter handle for the moment <laughs> is at Jean-Luc Neptune.
1: And mine, until Elon deletes it, is at Mark Lewis MD. Now, please remember that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show does not provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. Take care, everybody.
2: And please join us next time for Is It Serious?
0: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855 AUDIO 66 That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered Internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, go! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at Cox.com/internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability, as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary. Not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.